Thanks for joining us. Uh, my guest today is author, educator, and friend, uh, Dave Racer. Dave, thanks for making it on the show. It's really good to be here with you. <laughs> See you again. It's been a few months. It's been a few months. Yeah. Now, we met. How do we meet? Oh, I think through uh, Minnesota Physician Patient Alliance several years ago, uh, you actually had created another uh, activist mm -hmm. group yep. to advance. And, and uh, MPPA wasn't quite activist enough for you. Sure. I discovered that about you early on. <laughs> and uh, uh, we had uh, lots of time to talk together and get to know each other a bit. And, uh, and I, appreciate, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate how you're pushing forward and pushing against. Well, this a couple of years ago is when we started a uh, group for independent physicians. Yes. We're a dying breed, and uh, at that time, mistakenly believed that there would be people in the legislature who would care <laughs> about defending small businesses and increasing the number of market entrants in the hopes of bringing down healthcare costs and bringing up quality. Um, but uh, we didn't find much purchase on either side of the aisle, and having now been through the meat grinder of running for office and understanding on the inside the special interests and the lobbyists and the pressure they have and the way they can shape the narrative, um, I think it's a great opportunity for, uh, for particularly for conservatives to, to really double down on health freedom, independent physicians, um, and putting the you know patient-physician relationship first. Which is uh, absolutely essential if we're ever going to get a control on Access, quality, and cost. All the things we care about, right? <laughs> you know, what's interesting was this was in a pre-COVID world. Yeah. And so some, I think in a post-COVID world, many people have had their eyes opened to the flaws of big box medicine. Well, something is definitely going on out there. You know, as you know, I, uh, I consort quite a bit with the healthcare payer side also, uh, writing with a very, very conservative um, individual. We've written five books together, and we spent a lot of time talking about what's going on out there and theories about uh, usage, for instance. Um, what COVID taught us was people got scared to go to a doctor, right? And they put off things that maybe they shouldn't have shouldn't put off, off. Right. And some things they should have put off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, maybe they're not coming back like they did before because they just, they're still scared. Mm -hmm. You know, the government's doing a good job of keeping them scared. Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe they've discovered they can live with some things that they really didn't need to have taken care of. Now, that may not be what a doctor wants to hear. No, I think that's, that's what we're, that's what he's seeing with I his clients. I think that's great. I yeah. mean, I, I tell patients, you know, like, look, if it, if you're not an extremist, if this isn't ruining your life, like, you don't need to run in for every sniffle. Are you able to do your activities of daily living? Is this the sickest you've ever been? If the answer is yes to the first and no to the second, you know, okay, well, we're a self-healing organism, mm -hmm. and uh, our bodies are pretty incredible at repairing themselves. Sure. So why not give it some time? There's an old joke, doctor joke, you know, a guy goes in to see his family doc, and uh, he says, guy, you know, I, I took this supplement, and it made me feel better in seven days. And the doctor's like, well, that's <laughs> great, because otherwise you might have might have taken a week to get yes, there. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, so well, I, I could testify to this now. It's okay. I'll share this story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're in Europe. We're having a great time in August. And uh, first day there, and I, I, something happened. I looked down, and my, I've got this red thing all over my leg. It looks like a rash about to take over my body, right? And I thought I was bitten by a bug. I don't know what's going on. It was frightening. Mm -hmm. And I took a picture of it, and I sent it to you. And I said, <laughs> 
help, what do I do? I said, well, I'm in, I'm in Italy, where do I go to a doctor? I mean, I didn't say that to you. And you said, no, wait a minute, here's what this is. <laughs> <laughs> well, well the- if I was in America though, and you know, me maybe not, because I know a little bit about this, but boy, I'd have been a doctor in a hurry. And yeah. I said, I want to see the dermatologist because he's the only one who could analyze this thing. Well, I had a good, good friend recently who called me over the weekend and said, I'm sorry to bother you. And I was like, well, it's never a bother. I love my job. Call when you have an issue. And she says, well, I've you know, gone to urgent care three times now for this rash. <laughs> and they keep getting it wrong. And I said, just send me a photo. And you know, three seconds later, I was like, this is what it is. This is what we're going to do. And you're going to feel better. Um, one of the hardest things to, to teach medical learners is, you know, sick versus not sick. Mm -hmm. And then what are situations where you need to exert some influence to push this patient toward health or can you leave this? Sure. Like how aggressive do we need to be? Sure. And it takes a lot of knowledge and a lot of time to get that discernment. What's a sprain versus a likely hairline fracture? What is illness versus early or viral illness versus early pneumonia? Um, And so that level of discernment, uh, one, take some time. Mm-hmm. Two, it takes the right mind, combination mm-hmm. of knowing everything, but all, knowing enough, mm-hmm. but also having a willingness to check your ego when you're like, I haven't seen this, I need to get somebody else, or it's not getting better, which means I was wrong. Mm-hmm. So obviously you need to have confidence, but you need to have a list of things where if it's not number one and I'm wrong, then it's either two, three, four, five, six, or seven. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to step through these logically mm-hmm. until we get better. Sure. So my sure. first guess for you, fortunately, was the right one. <laughs> the right and one, yes. the <laughs> self-healing <laughs> organism that is the body did its it, job. It took uh, about 10 days to really clear up. Yeah. Like I would watch it every day. It's getting redder. It's getting redder. <laughs> you know, and then a few, but then we, there we were, you know, in, in Rome and in all these ruins, walking around Greece and Turkey and on this really hard to walk on surface. Yeah. I don't know, uh, you know, I had my best tennies on, but maybe that <laughs> wasn't good enough. And uh, there's another thing about, God, I, we weren't gonna talk about healthcare, but why not uh, for a moment, uh, that as you age, and I told you, I just celebrated my 75th birthday and I had a lot of fun with it. I think it's amazing mm-hmm. to be uh, older. I'm an elderhood now. And uh, to be enjoying life and still doing a lot of things and having gained a little bit of wisdom, you know, along the way, it's it's really kind of delightful. But what it does physically, uh, I had a brain bleed years ago. Mm-hmm. My wife says I'm oversensitive. Uh, I think it's another way for hypochondriac. But uh, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, as a as an elder person, I have trouble distinguishing between growing old mm-hmm. and having a problem right you know uh the surgeon says i can't do anything more for your leg you know mm, is that really true it right. really hurts a lot when do i give up you know it's right. like uh, what do i live with and uh so we go through a lot of that now you know and at this age and i'm i'm glad to have had a direct pay doctor for many years a cash practice doctor friend of yours mm-hmm. and mine who was just blunt with me. <laughs> well, so we talked, maybe maybe I touched on my last show with uh, Dr. Beecher, but can you tell folks who are listening what direct pay is and how it's different from the traditional healthcare most people sure. get? Sure, well, in the, the model that Dr. Don Gehrig had, uh, he handed me a menu of things that he did when I walked in the door, all the things that he did in his clinic, which was a man, one-person clinic, mm-hmm. I guess in his case, a one-man clinic, 
And uh, he had a receptionist and he had a part-time lab person. That was it. And he said, uh, if you're going to see me, it's going to be $60 for the first 10 minutes. And uh, if you're here for this amount, it's 106 and so forth. I always knew what I was going to pay when I walked in. And I paid before I walked out. That's called cash practice. And I only went when I needed to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a lot. Uh, he and I became friends So before he became my doctor. So we had that going. But when I had my brain bleed, I mean, here's how it plays out. Something happened to me. I'm on a treadmill. It's Christmas Eve 2012. I have no idea what's going on. I just know I never had this happen before. Mm-hmm. And it felt bad and it hurt. Mm-hmm. And uh, coming up the steps, I called him on his cell phone <laughs> early in the morning. <laughs> Isn't that unique? I didn't call a doctor. You know, I mean, I didn't call a, a what do you call a trauma line yeah. or anything yeah. like that, triage. I called him. He had uh, and left a message, had to take a shower because my mother taught me whenever you go to the doctor, you want to be clean, right? <laughs> That's but, a generational thing, by the way. <laughs> As my older female patients will still dress up to the nines, makeup, everything, hair perfect to come in. Well, to make a uh, long story short, I, he, he said, is your wife, what he called back, he says, your wife there, after I told him what's going on, I said, yeah, have her take you right to the ER. I think you're having a brain bleed. Uh-huh. And I always thought how that compared with uh, another time I was having a stress attack and I had to go through all this triage and the you know EMTs in my living room for 30 minutes before we even moved out of the chair and so forth. Here I had a brain bleed. Mm-hmm. And he says, get there mm-hmm. right now, you know, and uh, walked into the ER room and she <laughs> looked up at me and <laughs> Sit down, and the next thing I know, I'm in a you know an ICU unit, right. St. Joe's Hospital, and he got the call right, and he saved my life, mm-hmm. he saved my quality of life. Mm-hmm. And why did that happen? Because I had the ability to access him for quality care, mm-hmm. and he knew me that well. Right. So those two pieces are both, I think, really critical. Um, so that friend that I just talked about saw three different providers at two different urgent cares, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Continuity of care means a lot, and our system has changed from one where you had a primary care physician, either an internist, a pediatrician, or a family doc who knew you with all your quirks, Mm -hmm. and they knew your medical record inside out, and their group, uh, them and their partners, would follow you into the hospital and back out of the hospital. They rounded on their people when they were in. They followed you back to the clinic when you were out. The value of that longitudinal and deep knowledge within a small group of, of care providers um, is nearly extinct. Yep. Uh, yep. And I think patients are much, much worse off. It's just, it's shift workers, right? So yep. now it's a 12 yep. hour sign out. I'm an acute care surgeon. I do 12 on, 12 off, or I'm yep. a, uh, a laborist, which is the OB version of that, or a, a hospitalist. Yep. And they will argue any amount of not terribly compelling data that uh, there's no decrement in care and this and that. But the reality is it does cost more. And there is something to be said about looking up and seeing your doctor who usually sees you follow you into a very scary time in your life, take care of you, and then follow you for your first uh, post-discharge visit. Absolutely no question. And um, at St. Joe's, they had a hospitalist, just so happened to be a really close friend of Dr. Gehrig's. Mm -hmm which was another advantage of having an older doctor who had been around a long time 
and knew all the specialists. I mean, he knew where to send me all the time, you know, and, and, oh, he'll get mad at me for this. We probably spend more time talking politics and medicine when we were together, but you know, the, the last thing I'll say, about, and I don't know that all direct pay doctors do this for cash practice, but when I sat at his desk in the uh, exam room, there was no computer on the table. Mm -hmm. There was just Dr. Don and me looking at each other. Yep. And I know because of my friendship with lots of doctors, how important it is that you see the patient, you assess the patient, all the cues that you're getting back from body motions, you know, posture, uh, maybe even odors. I don't know what you're all looking at, but it isn't just something that's a chart that you look at your yeah. computer and a bunch of numbers there, you know. And, um, so not all cash practice doctors work that way, but a, a lot of them do. And, well, uh, and he was not a concierge doctor that had a fee, an annual fee. And sure, not a retainer. He was just a fee-for-service. He was basically he was fee for, your yeah, plumber, yeah, right? Yeah, fee-for-service. You call service. your plumber. You bet. Uh, you pay per hour. Yeah. And it sounds like you had a similar breakdown based on time. Yeah. And, um, and you get them for that time. Yeah. And, you know, what some people don't, I think, fully appreciate, and I know this drives tradesmen crazy, is like, look, I can fix my sink. It's going to take me three hours to do it. Or I can call a plumber, pay $250 for 10 minutes of their time. I'm not buying their time. I'm buying their expertise. It's exactly. So yeah. I don't have three hours to do around with this thing, nor yeah. do I want to spend three hours on my one day off yeah. from my family messing around with this thing. I want it solved. And the, the people who, uh, in my experience, have the least issue with their bill, because dermatology is pattern recognition. If you don't know it in half a second, you don't know it. Mm -hmm. And you better have a list of 10 things that it could be, and then you go down the list and you try sure. to figure it out. Um, but we work that same way. It's, it's, we can do it quick. So if you walk in and know what it is, you know, I texted you back right away, yeah. this is what it is. And then in my head, I knew the 10 other things it would be if it wasn't that based on how you were doing. And so you pay for that expertise. Yeah. So it's, yeah. a, it's an amalgam of time and expertise. Yeah. And uh, the better somebody is at uh, being a plumber, the better somebody is at being a doctor, a lot of times those two get compressed. And so it's like that's why there's that one hour minimum because a lot of times that plumber shows up and it's 10 minutes they're done. Yep, yep. And they're out. I am, they're out the <laughs> and door, I'm more than yeah. happy to pay their yeah. bill yeah. For, for their expertise. Yeah. Um, but you know who they're working for, right? That plumber is not working for my insurance company. They're working for me. Uh, Dr. Gehrig's not working for some big box medical retailer. He's working for, for you. That's right. Because you're yeah, paying exactly. his bill. Yeah. And I think that that distinction is lost on many people. They'll say, well, my health care is free if I go to clinic XYZ and see who knows what provider. Okay. Well, first of all, nothing is free in life. So think about what you're giving up and what you're yep. paying. Yep. Uh, that person doesn't work for you. They can protest till they're blue in the face, but their check is signed by health partners or fair sure. or whomever. Sure. And the check that goes to the person writing their check is from a third party payer. Sure. And so you're number three or four on that list of yes. people that are being worked for. And the government's <laughs> yes. somewhere in there too because yes. of quality measure, so called quality measure. Yes. So the advantage of going to direct pay, and I think, again, people learned this in COVID, was you'd show up and say, well, I've read about this thing or this thing. You'd be dismissed out of hand, not a conversation about you know, some treatment um, that, uh, that, that the, the big ones weren't giving, whether it was ivermectin or fluvoxamine or monoclonal antibodies. And people realized that the, there's nothing more expensive than free. 
Yeah, and exactly. So, <laughs> and so I think some people have started to believe and say, you know what, it, it's worth the few hundred dollars or a thousand dollars I might spend per year sure. to actually have someone who knows me, sure. cares about me, uh, is accessible, right, D yeah. directly when I have a question. Um, and I think that that's worth it. And I'm glad people are starting to make that yep. call, but more people need to see the Well, benefit. so the remarkable thing is uh, he decided he had to retire, you know. And, um, Doctors never I retire. Am, here I am going <laughs> on and on. Now we just have lunch together. Uh, but uh, I had to find a new doctor. Yeah. And I, I was talking with him about the people I knew, which weren't very many. Mm -hmm. But there was this one young doctor back in 2008 who helped me through some pretty tough stuff. And she was related to one of my best friends. Her, it was her daughter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I won't mention the system, but I thought I told him about her. He says, she sounds like a good choice. Mm -hmm. So I started to go see her. And when I say see her, well, that's been about one out of six times that I've been <laughs> to that doctor. I have seen all kinds of people. It's like... I want to see her. You know, she's the one that has the best bedside manner with me. Yeah. She sits 45 minutes and listens to me, yeah. you know, and instead of getting me in and out. And I know she gets the same that, uh, you know, well, maybe she gets a longer clinical exam, but uh, I also know it's Medicare reimbursement rates yeah. and highly so discounted not, and that everybody right. out there with private health insurance is paying more because of that. So, right. Oh, wait a minute. There we go. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was co-author on the book uh, Passion for Patients with, with Dr. With Beecher. Beecher, and um, we just spent a lot of time. And I was, you know, I think the idea of psychiatry, that he had a patient that was over 40 years with him. I mean, almost every every month at least he saw her. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine that in a, a primary care doctor or family practice doctor actually did happen or does even still happen in some communities where someone you know retires at 75 and they've been the family doctor all those years. Mm -hmm. Doesn't happen very often anymore, does it? Well, no, and, I'll uh, tell you that in people make, you know, other doctors like to make fun of dermatologists, like your visits are two minutes long and this and that and whatever. And we actually, for some of these folks, touch them more often than their primary care physician. Yes. You get to know them inside out, yes. all their quirks. Yes. Um, and we've made calls, like we've diagnosed Parkinson's sure because I'm looking at you and I'm like your face doesn't look right and I'm like I don't mean that in a bad way but I was like you know I'm Something's pretty sure you have mass faces I was yeah. let me take a look at your arms I was like yeah you have some cogwheeling you've got Parkinson's let's send you to neurology and that person bounced around to how many providers allegedly at their primary care clinic for how long mm -hmm. with the answer staring them in the face you and I talked about this a long time ago too when we first met um, how primary care had changed and the, the family practice of primary care doctors were no longer doing some of the in-clinic procedures that they used to yep. do that were common to do. Yep. They're getting sent on now to the specialists and you were seeing people that, you know, you could do the procedure and but you, you got paid frank, for it's a, well, it's, a, okay, it's a waste but, of my time, right? Yeah, I have yeah. real sick or people to treat or now I, you know, I have more difficult tumors to do that. You know, yeah, yeah. We, you can do this biopsy in your clinic. You don't need yeah. to be sending it to me. So I, I was always a big proponent when I would have family medicine residents that you need to do these derm things well so that I can do the thing that I train for, which is complicated stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't want your easy stuff. It's a waste of my time. You need to be taking care of this. 
Um, but that concept was very foreign because the the idea that particularly multi-specialty groups have promulgated is just punt, 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 punt. Mm -hmm. So identify the target organ. It has to do with some neurological thing. Well, okay, maybe it does or doesn't, but punt, punt to neurology, punt to derm. Um, the result is you never get any better, one, at what should be a fairly broad field in primary care. And you should only ask for help if your treatment plan is not working mm -hmm. or you've exhausted first and second line therapies, then by mm -hmm. all means, mm -hmm. I'm here to help you. Um, but sometimes that's just a phone call. You know, you don't need to necessarily send them by, but the incentives are all, you know, the incentives produce the outcomes that we see. So if a patient comes in demanding to see a specialist XYZ, even though their primary care physician has the correct answer, they're going to get dinged on some patient satisfaction survey if they don't sure. immediately refer them off. Oh, sure. And or order some unnecessary testing. There you go. And then, uh, you know, you get in managed care and MCOs and, uh, I mean, uh, HMOs and all of these where I, I, I think this is a true statistic. I believe we probably put in a few books. Uh, the efficiency um, of a of a a doctor who is whose practice is bought out. You know, he's an independent practice doctor. He goes to work for the the big company now, and his production drops. I think the word is production forty five percent. They just they don't get as much done. Well, how much of that is dictation? But how much of it also is conforming to the requirements of you know an, an overseer? And the other side of that is the pressure on uh, specialists, in particular, to perform, mm -hmm. to perform a lot. I, I I don't remember the man's name. I interviewed a, a doctor who was uh, a radiologist and uh, actually got fired because he couldn't do enough units a year to keep yep. the managers happy. Yeah, you got you a know. certain number of RVUs. So, you know, it used to be that uh, you get a bill, like I went to the doctor and they just billed me for their time, and that's how it used to be until Medicare uh, and the AMA mm -hmm. uh, conspired to create these widgets called relative value units, which yes. were never meant yes. for the application they've been used. So this right. is how every physician at a big system uh, has their product, so-called productivity measured, not in lives or happiness or good outcomes or saves. Uh, or maintenance of, of health, but uh, in how many widgets you produce, and everything from drawing your blood for routine labs to doing a brain biopsy all has a value created by some academics. Actually, it's worse than that. Those values are created by uh, <laughs> something called the ROC, mm -hmm. which is a group of uh, physicians arguing for who deserves more of a shrinking pie. Yes, some of that is in passion for patients. By <laughs> the way, uh, our friend Mr. Beecher was uh, out there lobbying for the psychiatrists at yep. the time. And, and I know the folks who and, were on the Derm side. And he was doing he was doing what he was supposed to be doing, trying well, to find the money for the psychiatrist. That's right. The, the whole system is, is just so Byzantine that you know your average person who's going to listen to this oh. is going to say, None of these words make any sense. I don't yep. know. I don't care. What they care about is getting better, having someone they can trust, yep. and uh, you know, getting all of that for a reasonable amount of money. Yep. And the amount of money we spend in this country relative to what we get in terms of quality by any measure, whether mm -hmm. it's the fake government measures or the more useful measures from patients are, am I getting better for a reasonable amount of money or yep. within a reasonable amount of time? Um, they're terrible. Yeah. You know, we, we pay a ton and we get very little. There's a lot of causes. Uh, some of us have tried to find solutions in, uh, in the political context. Yeah. Segway. Um, 
I, I have worked with candidates for many years on trying to formulate a health care message that was true and honest and effective and wouldn't get them in trouble. <laughs> and sometimes that's the first <laughs> measurement. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, because it's you get in the weeds and you and you know what you're talking about and you believe what you believe and you understand and you know why you believe what you believe and you know that marketplaces can work in healthcare with the right incentives, you know, with the right insurances and everything. But boy, try to explain that in a 10-second soundbite, you know. You can't, and politics is all bumper stickers, unfortunately, yes. which yes. is, you know, why podcasts are nice. I mean, you can really go deep into this, but, uh, you know, look at the most important question almost always is qui bono. And in this case, the people benefiting are, you know, United Healthcare's of the world, the mm -hmm. multi-specialty groups, the Essentia's of the world, or mm -hmm. Mayo's. They're the ones benefiting. Uh, it's certainly not the doctors that are uh, have seen real income cut, you know, significantly since the the golden days of the 70s. It's not patients who see an increasing fraction of their paycheck going towards sure. uh, and not into their pockets, but into the you know the pockets of Mayo Clinic or sure. another multi-specialty group or United Healthcare, which pays a dividend every sure. single quarter. Sure. Um, that's the reality, and and employers should get more upset about this because they would much rather put that money in the pockets of their patients or pay it as a dividend of their own. But yeah. instead, it's being siphoned off to what has become a behemoth, a way too large fraction of our GDP that returns, again, very little for the amount that it charges. So I'm actually working on a blog about what employers ought to be doing about this. You know, why why don't they work together? You know, I, I don't know. They, I was speculating. They're, they're busy. They're trying to solve problems. They don't want to be bothered. Actually, healthcare benefits is one of the few things they even want to deal with. That's mm -hmm. why they hire expensive HR people to try to figure it out because yeah. it's so complex, way overly complex. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and, the, and they're competitive, you know, that they're not in a business to buy health insurance or convince their employees how to use it. They're in business to make a profit, you know, making right. widgets or whatever. Right. So uh, it's really hard to get them on the same page. But there are basic principles that you can appeal to, I believe, that are also good, uh, sound uh, health care reforms. And, uh, you know, trusting the patient and the doctor to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. You trust your mother, don't you? <laughs> Why not your doctor? Well, and I think most people would say they do. You know, I mean, some not. I mean, you always have that. But... Uh, you know, having a little skin in the game. I was thinking about uh, the book you and I would write together would be called Skin. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> skin in the game. <laughs> okay, bad joke. Uh, well, um, I mean, there are things, and and uh, I was even thinking we need a contract. You know, with Minnesota, a healthcare contract for what we can deliver. But you know how general it would be. Mm -hmm. And it would have to be. It would have to be high-level themes because, boy, when you start drilling down, you know. I, I wrote a, a piece that was in the Pioneer Press several months ago on the new hospital-enforced um, uh, disclosure of, you know, hospital fees. Mm -hmm. Well, it's well-intended, mm -hmm. I think. Absolutely. A little naive, well-intended. And uh, so I, I checked the lines of code pricing code at Lakeview Hospital in Stillwater is over 13,500 
lines of code. I took one procedure and I wrote it on a piece of paper. And then I went to Mayo Clinic and found they had 1,050,000 lines of code. And I checked Cleveland Clinic and they did too. And what was remarkable, this will blow your mind, Cleveland Clinic, the law says you're supposed to be able to pull this up and read this in some machine readable format, right? It won't even load on your computer because it is so complex. You have to have a special program yep, it's too to big. open that sheet. It's a million lines deep and it's like 50 lines wide in different you know, provider plans. And I mean, it's, but it's a good example of what happens. So then I take this procedure from Lakeview and I search for it at Mayo Clinic. And of course they call it something different. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're a long ways from making machine readable hospital price disclosures. Yeah. Well, know, and even if you knew what it, what it was, uh, <laughs> if you live in Southern Minnesota, too bad. Yeah, you're too stuck bad. going. You have to no mail. choices. You don't, you don't have a choice, right? right? Unless you're right. a, a self-pay situation, yeah. like the uh, like the Indian clinics or yeah. tribes are, yeah. right? They yeah. can shop wherever they want, and yeah. I think that that's what um, employers should look at: is having a financial backstop against cancer and and very expensive things. But then, giving that money back to their employees and saying, "Shop, you know, go uh, understand that your primary care should cost you one to two thousand a year." So find a place where you get good value for that money yeah. and seek out people. One of the most amazing things is ask someone who works for a big box uh, or a university or academic center what something costs. Mm -hmm. they, they can't even they come close. They can't even get within a zero. <laughs> um, and that's a problem. You know, yeah. when I have patients come in, I know what everything costs. I said, look, yeah. I can give you a range because your plan might have different negotiated rates, but it should be between, you know, $900 and $1,500 yeah. if we order this test. Yeah. Okay. That helps me decide on the value of it. And they're like, well, what do you think? And I was like... I wouldn't pull a trigger yet, just unless you really want to. And if you want to, I'm happy to order it. But let's just sure. wait sure. and see if we need it later. Um, but if you don't know what things cost, you can't guide patients through. And that I think there's an ethical question there about whether we should just be doing things willy-nilly when the patient's going to potentially be on the hook for just a massive bill. Yeah. Um, and I don't think anyone at the big systems can answer that. They certainly don't think in that way, which is, I think, the patient-focused way to think. There's... Uh... <sighs> I mean, you could go on and on with examples. Uh, we did a book um, in 2020 called Healthcare 2020 um, that was about a different way of pricing, kind of reference base without getting too technical for listeners that have no clue what that is. Uh, it's a way of evaluating what a, a physician or a provider will accept as payment in full as a percent of Medicare. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are emerging health plans like that. And the advantage of that is that you have a max that the plan will play, pay instead of kind of an open negotiation with, you know, 40 different rates with the same mm -hmm. physician, as, as you're aware. Um, and so then the physician makes a decision whether they can live with 150% of Medicare or whether they need to charge more. Well, and they have the right to do it. And the patient has the right to say, to say you know no. what, uh, or yes. I, I want a Lexus or I want a Toyota. Yeah. Right? The, the yeah. existence of one does not uh, get rid of the other. And that this is this myth, too, that there somehow have to be kind of, there has to be one tier of medical care for well, tell me what other thing do we have we have 12 types of maple syrup you know like yeah, right. we, we, can, we can have tiers of these things where there's a guarantee uh you know baseline level of competence and care but then if you want the extra stuff you get the extra stuff and 
you should pay the balance on that bill. Very high-ranking uh, member of uh, the majority caucus in the Minnesota House a few years ago talking about health care. And uh, uh, people were talking about, you know, uh, free market health care and lots of choices and competition. And she just kind of went off. She says, I can't believe this. I go into the grocery store and I want to get a can of soup. And there's 30 different kinds of cans of soup there. And I get so confused, I go home without any soup. <laughs> and I thought, first of all, she's creating our health care policy. Yes. And yes. secondly, maybe you need an agent. <laughs> Well, but, yeah. I mean, but, you talk to these folks, they, they, they don't get it. No. They don't get it at all on either side. Munson was the closest to having some basic facility and understanding how the entire cake was baked. Um, but no, the answer is not going to come from the legislature. Those people can barely tie their shoes on either side yeah. of the aisle. The answer has to come from, I think, industry, who pays the majority of premiums and is getting fleeced and it's affecting their bottom line. And it has to come from patients. Yeah. Well, Last year, I did a little book on level-funded group plans. Now, there's an exciting subject for you. I'd rather talk about education. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. We've, we've gone way down the healthcare rabbit hole. We're not going to fix it. Uh, the bottom line is, I think, for anyone listening, is understand just the magnitude of it. I think in this discussion, um, we scratched the surface. I scratched the surface with Dr. Beecher. Yep. Know that the legislature cannot solve it. They're either willfully ignorant uh, or beholden to special interests. Mm -hmm. And they're going to believe whatever Mayo or Children's or Sanford or Essentia tell them. Um, you know, Michelle Benson, very smart. Yes. Uh, very, very smart. But yeah. when I had her describe what Children's explained for their pricing and why they get paid more for doing the exact same service in a Medicaid patient than I do, I could tell that she'd only talk to their lobbyists. Sure. Sure. And so if there's no voice for you, you know, uh, for independent practices, and we could bring down that cost that the state is bearing 100% of yeah. uh, in many of those Medicaid cases, if we had the chance, we just want a living wage to do it. So it's a big problem, and I think people listening just need to understand how massive and deep that swamp goes and how difficult it will be to try to change things. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try Nibbling at the edges, like Monson's bill on price transparency, is a good first step, but it has to be coupled with real action that puts dollars in the hands of purchasers, which are patients, yep. and allows them to go somewhere and do something with that money. I'll make a commitment to uh, studying that bill. Um, I brought a, a transparency bill to Scott Jensen when he first was elected uh, with Greg Ditello, my co-author smart guy that I work with. Um, and it resulted in the uh, primary care disclosure law that eventually passed mm -hmm. that required disclosure of the top 25 procedures. Now we're getting technical. Mm -hmm. But our goal was everything should be disclosed mm -hmm. and in a way that people can understand it. Um, that was the way, uh, I mean, I literally wrote that bill. So I, I'd be very curious to see and, and you know what? There was a lot of energy for it. This is the other interesting thing about it, maybe because they knew it was impossible and it would never work, but because uh, legislators are they're kind of cynical. It passed 126 to nothing in the House and 65 to 2 in the Senate. And to us, that was, and re Republicans, let's see, Republicans had control of the House that year. Did they have the Senate? I don't, yeah, they probably had the Senate or they had both. I don't remember. 
But the point is that there was energy. People actually wanted to see something happen, and it happened uh, with a good rationale, a good plan, and taking out of it all the petty politics inside that caucus, mm -hmm. which um, you know you're you're more than aware of now, uh, um, and you were aware of then. Um, things can get done. But yeah, I, but I think that that kind of law, you know, like I said, disclosure, I think it's a necessary first step. The pushback on that, and I think it's legitimate pushback, is that we get paid different amounts for the exact same service, which yep. is crazy, right? Yep. So it's like, which which one do I, which Blue Cross plan reimbursement do you want me to disclose? And then yes. the problem is that partial data in a vacuum, people say, well, I don't understand how I paid more than Bob over there for the exact same office visit or the exact same, you know, skin biopsy code sure. or whatever sure. it is. Sure. And also that's part of the problem, right? Um, you know, the, the law had no real enforceability. There was no teeth to it, so you didn't have to disclose anything that because there was weird. no penalty. Yeah, no penalty. Which was, yep. you know, if I was Typical. Mayo, that's what I would suit. You know, I'd, yeah. I'd try to kill it in committee. If I couldn't kill it well, in committee, I'd take away any teeth. Ironically, <laughs> the first year it was required, I went out and I got all the charts that I could get, right, including Mayo. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ran, what we were looking at is this percent of Medicare. That's what we really wanted to know, what percent of Medicare would Mayo Clinic accept as payment in full. We know it's an inaccurate test, but it's at least, we're doing the same to everybody, right? right? So it went from 109% in a tiny little clinic in southwestern Medelia to Mayo Clinic at 272%. <laughs> yep. Yeah, maybe it was about it. Yeah. And, and it was really funny because the day it came out, I was having lunch with the head of a hospital system. And I, I can't remember the name of it. It's over in South uh, West Twin Cities. I, I don't even know why I was with him, but I was. And I showed him this, and he opens up this chart, and he sees Mayo Clinic up there, and he goes, that's not surprising. He was number two. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was like, you know, 267%. And he says, that can't be true. That can't be true. And I said, this is from your own numbers. Yeah. You know, you don't even know what you're charging. You know, yeah. it's like, okay, so I shed a little light on some of us who are curious. Yeah. Uh, long, long, long way from what we really wanted. And uh, that's, I'm very happy to look at. Yeah. Uh, I'm not giving up, even though I'm 75. I'm still working on this stuff. So. Well, I hope you do with the legislature we have. I think we can hopefully get them to convince them to, to look at some of these issues that that are going to need to be dealt with if we want to try to rein in health care costs. Yep. You mentioned, to move on from healthcare since we've been out for a while, <laughs> you're an educator. That's your, your passion. Yeah, I'm passionate. For, I just love, I'm my, oh golly, I'm not supposed to say I love teenagers. That's not accepted. You're not anymore. a Biden. You but I do. <laughs> I so just get a kick out of I had the, ninth the to 12th graders. The opportunity yeah. to uh, testify at a student senate. Could you talk a little about that project and yes. student governance? And Yes, yeah. absolutely. 24 years ago, I started teaching a course called American Government for real. And uh, after, t and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute, but after teaching that a couple of years, I said, I need a second course. This isn't enough. And we should do a student legislature. So I invented Student Senate, it's called, uh, at an academy for homeschool students. 
That's the only place it's offered in the whole world right now, my form of doing this. And uh, we had no idea what we were doing. Well, that's not true. I had an idea what I was doing. I, I understood the process. What I didn't understand was the educational values. And uh, we started with um, you know a dozen students. And over the years, it grew and grew and grew and grew. And it became more and more dynamic year by year. I'm excited about what happens with the students. But I can tell you what the process is, because it's very fascinating the way this, this uh, works. This is a student-run organization student-initiated uh, study subjects. I don't come in saying to the students, you're going to study this, and you're going to study this, and you're going to study this. I say, let's get together now and talk about what you want to study. And they vote on it. They elect the subjects they want to study. They choose four different issues. And they've chosen, ah, oh, man. I mean, the first year they wanted to do... Uh, they didn't want to do animal rights. I mean, this is kind of weird to start with this, but uh, one of the girls convinced them to do that. I was so proud of her. I didn't want to study the issue, mm -hmm. but I was so proud of her standing up in front of her peers and convincing them to take on a controversial issue that they all disagreed with. And it was a great study, and we had in witnesses, just like you, uh, to talk about their side of the issue uh, the people who were not for animal rights <laughs> brought in a guy who invented a hide puller and a slaughter plant. <laughs> but anyway, uh, go ahead. So I should give you some serious ones like immigration reform. And, uh, well, I think it's good. To, I mean, you have to be able to steel man the other side's arguments. Yes. If you really want to understand how to dismantle them, yes. the first step should be trying to steel man them. Yes. You know, yes. trying to take their side and argue it as best you can and then understand where all the flaws are and then exploit those flaws. Yep. So what happens over time, uh, we, we now choose four subjects every semester. The students choose them. They're led by a student uh, president, a student majority leader, and, a, and assistant majority leaders who are all like coaches. They've all been through it before so they can help the other students who are coming along. Some of these students are ninth graders and they're sort of bedazzled by everything. Some are, are seniors and they're they're pretty savvy already, you know. And so here as a leadership training course, I'm putting a, a junior senior in high school in this position of running this organization like a CFO, CEO. And it's amazing to watch. And I work real close with them. I get to one-on-one -on -one mentor with those. And then she or he is having to manage these other leaders. So now there's an intrinsic learning system that you can't get out of a textbook. Mm -hmm. They're doing it. All of these uh, subjects that are chosen are then divided into committees, and the leaders choose the committee members, just like in the legislature, and they elect a chair, just like in the legislature, and that committee drives the study does a strategy, how they're going to study it, who they want to hear from as witnesses, uh, what they're going to study, try to identify, try to narrow it down. You're going to study um, law enforcement. Well, what does that mean? What are you going to study? And they have to figure that out in their committee. And think of the learning processes going on there, because you could study a wide range of things. they got to narrow it down to something doable. Uh, and then they call in the expert witnesses, which is where you got called in. Uh, I believe it was on COVID mm -hmm. the first time. Um, you've been there a couple of times, I, I know. And 
so in, in those situations, uh, we had the head of Minnesota's, uh, um, not influenza, uh, uh, in charge of uh, infectious disease. Right, Chris Arisman. Yeah, Chris yeah, Arisman. Yeah, yeah. Chris Arisman is a wonderful lady. She has a point of view that I don't agree with, <laughs> right? And, uh, well, uh, how, how novel to actually listen to both sides. Yes. Because I think Chris and yes. I would be on opposite sides of the COVID thing, but the point was the kids should be exposed to that. Yes. Uh, that yes. seems to be antithetical to anything that our schools are presently doing, which is teacher-based activism into only one idea. I mean, it should be exactly what you do. These are two people who don't agree on this issue, and you're going to hear from both of them. Yes. You're going to ask them whatever questions you want, and then you can make up your own mind. So that's a great example. Now, this is in a, another kind of student center we do in the summer that's real concentrated over five days. Normally, they don't get to have, you know, a Chris Harrisman followed by a Scott Jensen followed by you, by Jim Abler, mm -hmm. you know, they get to have two witnesses and they've got to be really careful because there's not enough time to do mm -hmm. this. Then they write their bills and they present their bills and they have to do a committee finding of facts and so forth. That's the process. In the summer Senate, though, they get exposed <laughs> over this summer in five days. They had 28 witnesses from Monday morning until Thursday at noon. If you can imagine. Wow. And so uh, the year that you were there, I think it was that year, uh, maybe it was another year, but uh, Chris Harrisman had come, Senator Abler, who has a lot of knowledge about this stuff mm -hmm. and a different point of view, mm -hmm. uh, even from you and I on some <laughs> things. I love him, but I don't agree with him a lot. Uh, and then Scott Jensen. And I think about this is high school kids and Senator Jensen, doctor, now candidate for governor, comes in and what's the first thing he does? He says, well, senators, because you have to address these students as senators. What did you learn from her? And he listened, you know, as they would all respond. And he said, well, first of all, she was wrong about this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, now you're, you're 16 years old and you just have been exposed to this, you know, very significant player in Minnesota. And you're hearing someone else say, well, wait a minute, you know, think about this. Here's facts. And so uh, the learning process of student senate is like that. It's um, very Socratic, <laughs> uh, asking hard questions, uh, being exposed to incredible people. You know something, um, Dr. Shaw, uh, people love to come and talk to high school kids. <laughs> they ask me all the time, how did you get so-and-so to come. I had a chief, one of the justices of the Supreme Court last year. How did that happen? Well, I've known Barry Anderson a long time, and, and I asked him. <laughs> oh, you know, uh, so we get legislators. We get, um, boy, on law enforcement, uh, we get some of the really tough ones that came mm -hmm. that were there on the night Precinct 3 is burning mm -hmm. down. We did uh, some law enforcement this summer. They were talking about uh, gun violence this summer. Mm -hmm. We had uh, Sergeant Andrew Schrader who runs the gun interdiction program in the city of Minneapolis come and talk about what it's like, the, the guns on the street. This, this is the high school kids. This is an amazing program. But So tell me how many standard deviations we are away from what's being taught in public high school <laughs> civics. <laughs> I don't think, I think that even applies. Uh, yeah, I think we're in the it's next like, galaxy. <laughs> so, so when I, you know, when I went to a public 
high school growing yeah. up around Chicago. Yeah. Civics was mandatory. Yeah. Uh, they may have called it different things. They may have had a social studies. Social studies, right? Yeah. But but you but Core by the time you graduated high school, you had to understand. Yeah. Uh, the theoretical underpinnings of our constitution and yeah. how bills come to be and yeah. what the branches of government are and the separation of powers and why it is that we have the system we have, and why it's pretty fantastic. Um. Do do kids graduate with that? Nowadays, my kids graduate with that because I teach it to them. Right, uh, your average public schools. Mm, I don't think so. Right, certainly not. Even even in I, I teach in an academy for homeschool students. Okay, that helps me organize my teaching. I'm going to take it online now so we can popularize it more. But um, um, that organize it. So I, unfortunately, I'm not getting to some of the people I really wish I could. I have parents uh, who have children in public school say, how can my kids take your course? You know, well, you can yeah. in the summer. You can come to Student Senate. But the American government class is different. I do a 15-week semester course. The first two weeks are on Christian worldview, mm -hmm. the foundations of the nation. I don't, I don't teach it uh, probably the way the traditional uh, Christian educator might teach that. I talk about the worldview that was accepted at the founding. The, what was expected of people at the time was very much based on the Christian principles mm -hmm. that brought many of them to America. They weren't all believers. They weren't all, you know, there's a lot of sinners there. They mm -hmm. had to be held down with laws. That's what the, the founders understood that, uh, that they were imperfect especially the founders were mm -hmm. imperfect. Uh, but their whole, the whole thing was when you function in society, there was an expectation of you, mm -hmm. and that's the way we were founded. When John Adams said our form of government is fit only for a moral yes, and religious moral people, people, that's, that's right. what he was talking about. And I think that the uh, public schools have done everything they can to discredit the fact that this is a Christian country that yes. this is it, it was founded now you can argue some were more deists you know jefferson had a jeffersonian bible right i mean try to basically t turn jesus into just a philosopher right and, and but even in but, that even in that mm -hmm. one of the historians said and he quotes jefferson saying the reason he did it was to bring our savior to the savages and he used the word salvages mm -hmm which is quite remarkable. I mean, he cut out all this other stuff, you know, and I'm not saying that he was, as you and I might think of a Christian, uh, that that's what he was. I think he was a troubled man myself. Mm -hmm. I think he well, changed his mind a lot during his <laughs> yeah. lifetime. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he didn't get along with John Adams too well until <laughs> toward the end. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and John Adams was not, a, he wasn't a, you know orthodox believer. Benjamin Franklin was a skeptic. Mm -hmm. But yet they all acknowledge the role that God played in the founding of the nation. In uh, 1892, in the Rector decision, the Supreme Court of the United States of America said, this is not David saying, this is a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. What did they mean? And they went into the historical underpinnings of the nation. I teach that in the first two weeks of my class. I think that that's critical because the other part that then, you know, the the, the leftist extremist will want to throw out is that somehow that's bad. And we say, well, how yeah. is it that <laughs> they created a small L liberalist, right, Western democratic republic, these Christian men, some of whom were slave owners, yes. uh, and buried the, the ultimate goal, 
which was in the reality of the Bible, which is that all men are created equal under the eyes of God. Sure. Christ died for all of them. Sure. The worst among us, especially. Um, And they knew the inevitability was in the declaration, but that the three-fifth compromise was an unfortunate way station to building a union that it would eventually have to reckon with. But even that, even that, see, uh, I, my third lesson is on the Declaration. I do an apologetic on it. It's almost like preaching to me. I just love it. I, I wrote a little book called America's Creed about the Declaration, that we have to have something to guide our rules. We can't just make up any rules we want. That would be terrible. What's the values? Well, look at the Declaration. You know, these are unalienable rights that find their, their creation in God, not in man. And that's how we can be governed by the consent of man. And the whole purpose of governance is to protect those unalienable rights. Oh, and that is what so wildly thing. different from Europe, right? Where, <laughs> yeah, the, where your yeah, rights descend yeah. from God, reason, uh, from, from and or, everybody or, reason, or even to, uh, the 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 um, the monarch. Yeah, right. Your rights yeah, come from yeah, the monarch, yeah, and then the yeah. monarch got displaced by a legislature yeah. of some yeah. kind, and uh, your your rights come from government. Yep. Whether that's a monarch, yeah. whether that's a, a parliament, uh, they certainly don't come from God, and they are inalienable, or some people will say unalienable, from the individuals. And yeah. that individual primacy, right, the smallest minority, yeah. the individual, and the fact that the rights derive equally to every individual from God, yeah. and that government's job is to protect that. Not well, then, to, to then you spend uh, uh, the rest of the first half of the semester teaching the Constitution, um, I have a, a unique distinction. I was the chairman of the Constitution Educational Foundation for many years and the president for a while. I also was the founding uh, uh, president of the Declaration Foundation. Hmm. And uh, it's one of the reasons Alan Keyes and I love each other so much. He's a great apologist on the, the Declaration. We talk about this a lot. Um, you can't understand the Constitution without the Declaration. Right. But then you get into the Constitution and you blow people's mind. You say, what are the four branches of government? And they look at you like, you yeah, have no clue, you know, what, where'd you come from? And they rattle off, you know, executive, uh, legislative, judicial really fast. I say, well, what about the first three words? Mm-hmm. We the people. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, we're the kings of America. Yes. We're the sovereigns. Yeah. And uh, when you start putting it into those terms, and then you say... This is not a document that tells you your rights. This is a document of enumerated powers telling the, the government federal government <laughs> its powers. Yes. Oh, where's the one that says they get to create a Department of Education in Washington, yeah. D.C.? Huh, I can't find that. Show me the one about abortion. Too. Show me the one about, yeah, abortion, yeah, which... Boy, uh, show me the right to health care. Show me the right to shelter or food or anything. <laughs> yes, yes. The rights are free. Right? Yes. Well, and then you go back to a moral and religious people. We can't survive unless we are, are moral people. We won't have a system of law that will work because we're not taking care of the people that Christ said to take care of in Matthew 24. You know, uh, that's, well, no, I'm, uh, I'm on my. <laughs> I, like I love it. this stuff. I like it. Uh, so we've done in my in my government class. We've done. We start with Christian worldview. We do a little on the Northwest Ordinance, but not much. Uh, and then the Declaration, then the Constitution. 
uh, and I have to do a sidebar here, uh, of all the men in my life who've had an effect on me, one uh, was a ninth grade teacher, black man, 1962-63, recognized the era in mm-hmm. the city of St. Paul. I'm a public school grad too, by the way. Dr. James Phillips, Dr. James Phillips, wow. teaching at junior high school in Core City, taught me to love the Constitution. And we took it apart and we rebuilt it. Uh, and I learned so much from that. He was terribly disappointed years later in life when he heard I was an Alan Keyes uh, campaign manager. But, you know, <laughs> that's all right. I grew up and he didn't. Uh, well, I would wonder what he <laughs> thinks about things now because you, you almost – if you could go back and take, you know, anti-war distrust in big government, big pharma. Yeah. If you took those ideas, which people would popularly say belonged to the hippies, right, in the yeah. 60s. Now I think they reside solely on the right, <laughs> well, or in good in in large part, yeah. which is just I mean some of these words sometimes are, are bizarre, right? Left and right, and they 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 don't always quite make sense. I think the concept of the government getting out of things that it has no place being in yeah. is ensconced in that in those kind of liberal beliefs from the '60s, and I think there's a large section of folks on the right and probably some people that would self-identify as left who would say that I fully agree that the government should be should not be involved in these things sure stick to those if, things that we've you know said they can kind of do okay well I was a senior in 1964-65 was campaign year for president Barry Goldwater and Lyndon Johnson right I led the campaign in my senior social studies class for Barry Goldwater <laughs> I was getting it already, you know, and it was funny because we had two votes the first time we voted, and after our campaign, we got 13, But um, which is kind of the way the East Side still is in St. Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we made progress. Um, and then I, I'm a Vietnam War era veteran, Air Force veteran, and it was during that time that the free love movement, you know, exploded and the hippie movement and... I was pretty disgusted with people my age. You're in the military; it's very conservative anyway, mm-hmm. you know. And especially in those days, it was Not really yeah. conservative. And um, came home, and uh, you know, I didn't go through that, you know, not wearing my uniform when I came home thing. Uh, I would have anyway. It's just why would I wear it? I'm out of the military, right. you know. Right. I don't really need to wear it anymore. I was very proud of my service. Uh, but I had friends who lost their lives in Vietnam. I had in-laws who were spit on and you know berated. And so I guess the reason I'm bringing that all up is um, the movement of that era. There was there was something good about it. Questioning big government, questioning big corporations, mm-hmm. and all of that. Even though they didn't understand, I don't think intellectually what that meant. But it went awry, and it was hijacked. Um, and you can go back and look at the purposeful destruction of the United States that came out of that era, the breakdown of the family and radical feminism. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. advancing the cause of women. I'm talking about mm-hmm. radical feminism. Uh, the drug culture, uh, advancing um, you know, the whole idea of uh, the war on poverty. We're gonna, you know. Well, right. Most of these are the result of Johnson's policies. Yeah. And that's yeah. where everything started to go off the yeah. rails. Yeah. Destroyed the black family. 
increased drug use, ghettoized neighborhoods, um, saw a massive increase in, in violent crime, which I think traces back to the destruction of families and social structures, you know, sure. whatever you want to call that belief in, in, a, in, a, in a republic, sure. something greater than you. Yes, a republic. Oh, I got in an argument with one of my employees. I have someone I employ who helps me develop my curriculum because we're doing that now. We're making Student Senate a national curriculum so that people can do this all over, this wonderful experience. And uh, I started proofing this thing, and it started out, and it said, and so in our democracy, and I stopped, and I said, I won't say her name. I'll call her Alice. That's my mother's <laughs> name. Alice, this won't work. What do you mean? It says democracy. There isn't a, there isn't a homeschool family in the country that will buy this curriculum <laughs> if it says democracy. Well, what do you mean? You know, and I, I explained that if, she should know, she's a former student of mine, but uh, the Dutch Twitter Republican, she says, well, that's just your conservative word. I said, no, it's not. Right. Go right. back and study. We don't have mob rule. It's We're not a democracy. The Constitution even, you know, yeah. the, all the states are guaranteed a republic form of government. Yes. And it means a lot, you know. Uh, so just to finish that, because I just started teaching my uh, 24th year American government, the part I call it, for real, so I just given them how government's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. Now we go into partisan politics, politics, lobbying, and yeah. I'm I'm not anti-lobbyist, by the way. I think lobbyists serve a right to free purpose. speech. Right, that's right. <laughs> uh, tax system. When I teach the tax system, I say my goal today is to send you home angry, and uh, <laughs> and I usually do. Then I'll do the media, and we have so much fun. And they go home and they say, "Wow." Mm -hmm. I never thought of that, you know, and, uh, the words that are used and the stories that are covered and how they're covered. And I have that great video of that fool standing in front of Precinct 3 burning down saying it's mostly quiet around you. That's right. Yeah, mostly peaceful. <laughs> that's a that's a classic that will live on as a meme forever. On the Isn't internet. that something? It's amazing. So, and then um, they, they leave uh, American government and then the spring they go into student senate for the uh, student senate curriculum. I watch young children grow up in 15 weeks. It is the most remarkable thing you could ever witness, why I love it so much, why I get emotional about it. To see, uh, I'll give you an example from last year. Listen to this, this boy was so self-conscious and afraid he had a friend he sat next to, almost held on to all the time, ninth grader. He would try to ask a question. He'd get all bollocked up. He couldn't get the words out, so he quit asking most of the time. Um, at one point in the semester, every member of a committee has to get up and give part of a presentation. So he gets up when it's his turn, and he almost vomited. He almost passed out on the floor. He was retching and beautiful, his committee chair walked over another boy about his age, put his hand on his back, comforted him, said, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. And the whole Senate is just hoping that he can get through this, right? Mm -hmm. A week later, the same boy on the other committee that he serves gets up and does his presentation. Without all that, had a lot of trouble with his words, right? As the semester goes on, this boy starts raising his hand, asking people like you who come to testify tough questions. 
uh, asking his fellow senators tough questions, presenting his bill in front of them, convincing them to pass it. I see this every year in that program. Uh, and it's just, how can you not want to do it again, you know? Uh, unfortunately, I don't have enough students sometimes. And uh, then we do the summer Senate, and that just blows your mind. It's uh, five days so intense of hearing from these incredible people and uh, exposing students to that. Um, so if people are interested in volunteering and donating to this, where would they go to get, to get info? I have a website. It's pretty easy to remember. It's my name, Dave Racer. <laughs> D-A-V-E-R-A-C-E-R.com. And uh, you can look along the top. Uh, there's there's um, probably more stuff on there. There ought to be. But uh, you can find references to Student Senate and Summer Senate and the other teaching that I do and um, the writing that I do and blogging and so you've been doing things. this 20 plus years of these kids doing this. Some of these kids you must have tracked out, right? They're, they're adults. <laughs> they have their own kids. You might be teaching some of their kids soon. Uh, have any of them put what they've learned into practice? People that ended up in politics or in... Well, this is sort of exciting to share. Uh, but before I do, this year, this girl walked in and sat down and I said, I'm going to embarrass you today. She said, why? I said, I had said to everybody else, she is the fifth in her family that I've taught. Wow. <laughs> and all four of her, three of her four brothers have royal blood. That means they were leaders in student senate. Okay, so this year uh, at the Republican convention, I was standing down on the floor watching Jim Schultz in the tunnel when he gave me the thumbs up that he had gotten the endorsement for attorney general. He will tell you, Dave Racer's my American government teacher. Really? <laughs> so that yeah. is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm just you know, a little pumped about Jim. Wow. He has that a daughter named Alice, exciting. which is my mother's name, you know. Wow. And, and you know the beauty of that, and I and I don't, you know, a little self serving, I guess, but uh, for me I love staying in touch with my students. Yeah. Before I came today, one of them, thirty one years old, former cop, now an airline pilot and going into the ministry mission field called me just to catch up. So uh, Jim called me when he was still an attorney in Chicago before he was married, and he said, I'm coming through, can we meet? Comes in, and he says, someday I'd like to run for office. Tell me what I do. You know, and this is so cool, because then he comes back with his wife, and we talk, and then he comes back with children, and then he's <laughs> moving here, and I say, why don't you run for, you know, like city council in a small city? <laughs> and he calls me and says, I'm gonna run for attorney general. Really? <laughs> I think he's going to win. He's just doing a I great job, win. you know. So I have been blessed, uh, Neil Shaw, by um, knowing um, of the candidates who ran for governor, of the six that I call the real candidates, mm -hmm. five of them are former witnesses at Student Senate, <laughs> <laughs> including yourself. And uh, I think we were just blessed to have wonderful people, different points of view, mm -hmm. you know, quality people. And I know there's stuff that goes on behind the scenes that nobody knows about that's pretty ugly. But uh, it, it was amazing to me. I was I was pretty excited about the field. I, I had picked someone else at the beginning. <clears throat> I don't think I ever told you that I had uh, called, uh, well, two of the 
candidates early on, and you aren't in the race yet. And I said, this is very audacious, but I have a request. I've never done this before. And they said, what? I said, I want to head up the healthcare redesign commission of the governor hmm. after you're elected. <laughs> I got a yes from one. <laughs> I got a, well, you'll be involved from another one, which... Well, okay, that was political. Well, but. I mean, I think that it would be great to have, you know, Scott in there or to have a caucus in the House or the Senate, particularly yeah. the Senate, because yeah. we should have a strong majority yeah. that really wants to do something with this. But it's going to need to take people that actually want to do the right thing, yeah. regardless of who that makes mad. Yeah. Because ultimately, yeah. who you serve are the people, the people. of the state yeah. of Minnesota. And you should be doing what's in the best long term interests of the people of the state of Minnesota. And yes, uh, corporations are a stakeholder there, but corporations come and go. The people will always be there. And I would really like to see some courage to lead on that end of saying, you know what, this is going to make someone like Mayo mad, but it's the right thing to do. And yep. we should be pursuing what is, you know, in that greater public interest of price transparency and control over your money and not just favoring special interest groups that have a lot of lobbying dollars. So I, I took us afield there from the issue of education, but this is the practical application of the right. education. Um, I was attracted to you very early on because of your energy. I didn't know much about you. Um, I'm, I'm glad I picked up on the vibes that you have uh, this great foundation of knowledge about the United States and um, about your faith um, and so much. Um, I'm, I'm not just saying this to make you feel good. I, I'm so glad that you took the chance and got in and had a voice and you conducted yourself so well in that campaign. I don't have a clue what went on behind the scenes in the back we, room. We ran, but, we ran uh, it clean. I mean, I think that the yeah. convention was, uh, the convention, the way it, ended yeah. you know, for the governors, all the drama, uh, I think probably reflects who those men are. Yes. And yes. I was very happy that our campaign did a great job. We were always classy. We yes. had some of the best volunteers, great staffers, um, and I think we acquitted ourselves well. We made a promise of what we would do and what we wouldn't do, yep. and we stick to your promises. And I think that Doing that shows people who might be on the fence about becoming involved in politics because it is it is terrible. It is, it is very a terrible hard. Thing. It's a tough business. It's I've been tough. Doing it since it's nineteen seventy eight. Right. Okay. Al Quia was my first candidate. <laughs> I want another winning governor candidate. <laughs> we'll get one sooner or later. Um, but uh, you know, for people to expose themselves in that way, either they want something. Yeah. Right, like yeah. the Kurt Doubts of the world. They want the power. Yeah. Or they just happen to wander in and want to do the right thing. And yeah. they said, this is what I really believe is necessary to save this republic. And they get involved for those reasons. And those people exist at every level. And the hope is when you see that there are people who are doing it for the right reasons, yeah. the founders' reasons, that that gets more people off the bench. And you don't have to run for the big flashy office. Just get on your school board, run for city council, just get into the exactly. the grist mill and try to make it less terrible. Because otherwise, it's going to be left to the narcissists and the sociopaths, and we're all worse off for that. Mm. And that's not a partisan plea. I think there are probably people who I could disagree with 
but respect on the other side of the aisle. And sure. I will certainly fight to win the battle and get my ideas advanced. Sure. But I can respect someone that's internally consistent and that is serving something that's greater than themselves. And um, that is very, very rare in politicians at any level. There's something else I, I want to say publicly, actually, uh, because I'm a pretty intense competitor when it's time you know, to, to mm -hmm. fight. And my guy came in last, which was really shocking. <laughs> but I know why. I think I know why. I mean, it maybe was maybe I had bad campaign advice. I have no idea. But uh, so one of our one of our uh, uh, leaders on that campaign said one night that he got a knock on his door, and he lives way out somewhere in the boonies up around St. Cloud, and it was this candidate or this worker for Neil Shaw <laughs> out there knocking on a door, and I went, I'd never heard of that ever in a campaign for. Nomination. We knocked so, every delegate's door, or but nearly. Here's, here's what the compliment I want to make. Uh, I was part of the group that took over the Republican Party in 1982. It was a Christian right. That's how long I've been around doing this, right? You know, it was a concerted, planned effort. Uh, and I watched as other factions this year and last year and the year before set the ground to, to begin to come into the party and influence the party. And I wasn't always happy about this because mm -hmm. I had my own people that I was trying to support, and they didn't. Uh, but I've seen how effective that group has been, and, uh, and I want to commend them. And I think that they know who I'm talking about yeah. now. Well, uh, I think that, so you, I mean, you, you essentially ran this insurgency from the other side, right? You wanted to take over the party. Were you successful? Oh, absolutely. We got blamed. Man, we got blamed hard. And by 1986, <laughs> I mean, we were the devil, even though we were the Christian right taking over the party. But you know what happened was, and this you got to really guard against this. I, I'm, not, I'm very, very serious. By the late 80s, early 90s, our faction was more about staying in power than we were mm -hmm. making a difference. Although our platform didn't change, we were committed to that. We were tough on people who wandered off, especially on abortion. Mm -hmm. uh, but boy, um, you know, we needed this person to be national committee woman because, man, if she's not, you know, and uh -huh. so we got to beat up on this one. Yeah, she's a nice lady, but no, no, no. She's not one of us. It's a funny thing you know? that happens when you get more interested in staying in power or staying in office or getting yeah. elected to higher office and you forget why exactly it was that yeah. you got into the scrum in the first place. One of the men I met early on, I met some really high-quality people, and they're still friends, uh, and I'll mention him by name. Maybe there's things about him people don't like now, but Cal Ludeman uh, was elected to the Minnesota House um, about the time I was hanging around there a lot in the late 70s, early 80s, and um, I ran the governor campaign against him for a guy named Mike Menning, who had been a Democrat and switched parties. But Cal was such a good man, and, and we respected him so much. Um, and we always made peace with him. In the convention, uh, Mike Manning had to step down when he wasn't going, it wasn't going his way, and he gave his support to, to Cal, and he became the, the uh, candidate for governor. And, and we, we're still close friends now all these years. But I remember what Cal said when he went in the office the first time in the House. He said, three terms, maybe four. If my head starts turning, I'm getting out. <laughs> and he did it. That's yes. rare. And he came back later. He ran for Congress and almost won. But that's, you know, neither here nor there. And 
he's uh, Secretary of the Senate, and I think he's there because he's really, really good at what he does, Secretary of State Senate. I don't know. I mean, he's aging like me. He's part of elderhood now, but... So good people can make a huge difference. Yeah, and I in think that so many different ways. Keeping that coalition together that you built in the early '80s, that I think is being built now, um, repurposing the party into something the DFL will fear, not laugh at. Yeah, um, I think is important, and I think taking responsibility for uh, it's not the DFL that wins; it's the Minnesota GOP that loses. Yeah, yeah, and we're in control of changing that and standing for the right things and getting good candidates and getting activists involved at every level from school board up. So I've run for the Minnesota House three times, the Minnesota State Senate once, and I'm always running terrible districts, right? <laughs> I got 38% the first two times. In 1994, uh, when she was still in the Minnesota House, I ran against Betty McCollum mm. in a terrible district. But I got 42%, okay? So the trouble is when you get 42%, you think you can do better. It's kind of like golf. You make one good shot, you think you can hit it more. <laughs> anyway, in uh, 2002, we didn't have a candidate to run for the state senate. And me, Mua, the first Hmong elected legislator. Which, what are you in? What district? That was, I don't live there anymore. Okay. East side of St. Paul. Okay. Okay. George Bush got 26% of that district. <laughs> I knew what I was doing. I knew why I was doing it. My job was to keep her at home and try to turn out more Republicans for the cause, mm -hmm. right? And I went down to see the Senate majority, minority leader, and he said, we think you can win. And I looked and I said, what is the matter with you? <laughs> and he says, no, here's how, here's how. Here's. I said, you just ruined my life. Now I got to really run, you know. <laughs> Next person I run into is Michelle Bachman. And she's, uh, she saw me walking past. She called me and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to run for the state senate, 67, against me, Mua. She said, sit down, sit down. Pulls out a yellow legal pad. She said, first thing you need is a prayer team. I'll never forget this, Neil, as long as I live. That was her first priority for me. And, um, and we discovered a potential way to win in this district. I ended up with 42%. <laughs> it's not bad. And I, I, had, I, wonder, I don't know what they're doing now. But. I had union guys supporting me, which was really weird. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, here, I guess the point is, you know, for me anyway, it's it's sort of a missionary thing in a way, but uh, you're you're engaged because it's the right thing to do, right. and you do tie up the, the other guys at least somewhat. They have to pay attention to you. And um, if you run a good campaign, oh, this is the other thing. Here's my advice to every candidate who ever runs: run a good campaign. What would what makes a good campaign? Good looking, you know. Go out and make the effort. Be seen. Uh, let your voice be heard. Uh, even when you know that you're in a district that's 26% Republican, you're running as a Republican. Just do everything right. You know what happens is, I mean, the Lord sees. Um, I used to walk from house to house saying I'm the best kept secret in Minnesota. Uh, I used to sing in Jesus' name, I press on, a great song as I walked. But that was my job. I was supposed to do that. And I finished, and I didn't do it for this reason, but party leaders said, man, you ran a good campaign. My opponent called me and said, that was a great campaign. I said, yeah, you beat me <laughs> really bad. <laughs> you know, not me, Mua. She didn't call. Betty McCollum never called. She sued me instead. She sued everybody. Uh, 
but people people notice, and the next thing you do, you know, you're consulting with Kendall Qualls, who's a candidate for Congress, or mm-hmm. you know, with um, this member who's running over here for this or that, and I get to do that, and it's it's you keep your name high, you know, and treat people with respect, and um, you don't hate anybody. I think probably there's one candidate on the six that I never get along with. <laughs> I'm not mentioning names here. <laughs> so do you think that uh, people, it's fond of saying, and you have more historical perspective than I do, it's fond of saying that this is the most poisonous politics and have have ever been or have been for some time. What, what would you say to well, that? Well, yes and no. Uh, I think because of the public perception, because of what the media is doing, which is absolutely abominable. abominable. So, so how was the media and, different in 1985 versus now? Oh, well, it wasn't, there, there wasn't as much of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that the, especially the local news, local newspapers, even though, you know, the Minneapolis Stars, Tribune, whatever it was at the time, everybody recognized it, you know, as more liberal, mm-hmm. but liberal didn't mean anything like it does now. Mm-hmm. It wasn't crazy. You know, uh, I think that people were probably a little more reasonable and um, we just, we didn't have exposure to as much news. Now, uh, you know, everything is so emotional uh, driven. Certainly Donald Trump affected that. I, Hillary Clinton certainly affected I think you can go back and look. Um, you know, during the Clinton years, I mean, people start getting alarmed. You know, what's going on in this country? This isn't what I knew. Even when I was rebelling, this is not what I knew. Yeah. But someone told me a story the other day about, uh, about. Um, okay, come on, uh, James Madison and, uh, was it Alexander Hamilton? I might get that one wrong. But they were they were running for Congress for this. No, it wasn't Hamilton. Oh, come on, name it'll come. They were running for Congress early on in mm. the same state, right? And Madison pulled a power trick on his opponent that left him on the outside. I mean, you, yeah. you know, you think this well, is all no, new. No, right? Politics <laughs> has always been a blood sport. I, I forgive um, me that I can't remember the name. It'll come to me. But but, but I think your point about the media is well taken. You looked. Oh. At, there was a time where I read the New York Times every day. I knew yeah. it had a yeah. liberal slant, but yes. you could read through it, right? Yes. Um, they attempted to generate news, and they did some great investigative journalism. They did. They had great. You know, w- w- the era where they had you know Barry Weiss and Alex Berenson. And that that's not even that long ago. But they yeah. fired all those people. They yeah. pushed them out. Yeah. Um, even though those people are far from conservative, so but the the the, the semblance of attempting to be objective, yeah. attempting to steal yeah. me on the other side, yeah. uh, uh, trying to remain neutral, yeah. even if you messed up on it, there was still that quote unquote journalistic ethics, which was to tell the full story. Yeah. And now it's activism. There is no journalistic ethics. Yeah. It's in activists. I wouldn't say it's a modern phenomenon, but it isn't a long-time phenomenon. No, I don't uh, agree. You know, the ivory uh, schools that started kicking people out for saying the wrong thing. I mean, you and uh, Dr. Beecher talked a lot about wokeism. Um, I suppose there was some of that when I went to McAllister years ago, but I don't remember any of it. Yeah, I can't McAllister ever being uh, a safe place (laughs) for right people. it It was an absolute... I mean, to me, it was really liberal. I ended up leaving there and going in the Air Force. But well, I think uh, now it's probably just a 
crazy. Unrecognizable dumpster fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah really. Probably dumpster fire. Really, so is, really. Uh, well, even St. Olaf, like my wife's a, an Ole, and she's like, no, I, I'm not sure I could go there. Carlton's the same way. I mean, there's. I, I'm not sure any of these places actually educate anyone anymore. Uh, educate in the sense of learn the tools t- to have rational discourse, to question everything, to have an inquisitive mind, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. we will spoon feed you some things, and we expect you to think well, a certain way. Think of you know, think of race. One of my favorite stories about Alan Keyes, and this kind of expressed how I looked at him as a human being and as a great thinker and a prophet. That's his problem. He's a prophet. Prophets don't get elected. <laughs> anyway, we're up in North Dakota. Not too many whiter states in North Dakota at a pro-life dinner, and um, we're mixing it, the fundraiser part in the beginning, you know, before the, the dinner, and someone came up to me and they said, um, and I was his campaign manager, I don't know if you know that, I was a national campaign no. manager for no. Keys for President. And What year was that? 96. Wow. And they said, uh, uh, Mr. Racer, would you uh, get Dr. Keys up on the platform, we want him to speak a little bit, so get him up there and he sat down and, and I walked up to the podium and I said, can I have your attention, can I have your attention? They all look up and I said, uh, a lot of you have been coming up and asking if I'm Alan Keyes. <laughs> and he just, what? <laughs> you know, and I pointed at him and I said, he's the guy with the beard. <laughs> he almost fell off the platform laughing. But it was what I felt about this, what's color? My teacher in ninth grade that taught me to love the Constitution was a black man teaching in inner city St. Paul. I didn't, I didn't know. I mean, we were kind of nasty what we would say about you know black mm-hmm. people at the time. But man, I never hated anybody. You know, it's like this is this is crazy. And now you can't do you know Alan Keys can't even be uh, you know a, a part of that club of dark. We get on TV together, you know, he does this national TV show, I'm a guest quite often, and, and I'll say, Alan, I don't even know what to call you anymore, you know, what are you, you, what do you dark brown? Just ask brown? him what he identifies as. <laughs> he says, well, I am pretty dark brown, you know. <laughs> he's, he's quite dark. <laughs> so we're, uh, okay, so where did all that go wrong? Uh, race? I mean, I think well, we just got too far away from what Well, the civil rights fight was about, which yeah. was equality of opportunity, yeah. not any guarantee of outcome. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then uh, it was uh, politicized to the point that, you know, every every incident now is is politicized. I, a lot of it's for money. You know, the money and power, Black Lives Matter made off, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, made off well, I of think the there, George Floyd death. It was, it always looked like a scam to a lot of people, and now it's clear that it was sure, a grift. sure. Sure, um, and hopefully and it, some of those folks go to jail. It's sad because uh, a, a lot of groups start, you know, with the right motives and they're doing great work. And then over time, it's kind of like political parties that get taken over for power. Yeah. You know, organizations that are around a long time. Someone said to me when I was telling them about my student senate and how I was growing it, you know, all things get more liberal over time. <laughs> and I said, well, that's not my responsibility. I'm going to show them how. What they do with it, that's their problem, you know. But uh, I think that the media is so complicit in this. Uh, and and I'm grateful 
for the alternative media that we have now. Even what you and I are doing, um, you know, we'd love to get hundreds and thousands of people to listen to these. Um, I've been on, I had my own show on Brighty on TV for a while. I remember doing uh, that when I was a candidate. Yeah. That was fun. Yep. And Alan is still on there and I get to guest host for him. But, you know, it's hundreds of people. It's not thousands. It's not millions. There's so much competition among us even, you know, and yeah. we all think we're the best at it. And we had a radio show. I did. I did talk radio. Um, quick story about that. I had a, I started with an investigative newspaper in the late 80s. Really? I did investigative stories about bad government, mostly about Rudy Perpich. That's real journalism. It right? was. Yeah. I remember talking talking to Brian Baxt, who was at the at the uh, GOP convention. And it was a friendly exchange because he was, he was always honest in his interviews. And I said, Brian, you know, the one job you have to do is just hate everybody equally. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. lying to you. Yeah. And the job of a good journalist is yeah. just dig, dig, dig and not have well, any friends. And then you're doing your job. So, you know, I'm a man of faith. So I had this monthly tabloid. I was doing really good investigative stories. And someone introduced me to a fellow named Tom Matthews. Tom had been an uh, investigative journal with the Pioneer Press, a journalist with Pioneer Press. He was city editor there uh, with the Star Tribune, covered the Capitol for both, and KSDP. That was his mistake because he's not a TV guy. So Tom and I met one night, and I had my newspaper, and I had the first book I ever wrote, which is called Smokey's Last Job. And uh, and he took him home and read him, and he, he said, I want to meet you. And we started seven at night. At 3 in the morning, we went home. We couldn't stop telling stories. And he looked at me, and he said this. You are one of the few people actually reporting news. This is 1987. And I hired him. So I had this man with all this training and background. And he hated everybody. <laughs> <laughs> he was part of the group that brought down Rudy Perpich in 78 and these Upper Great Lakes scandals. And he loved Rudy as a person. He mm -hmm. says, hey, I'm going to tell the truth here. You, you got to tell the truth, and so politics is corrupt. I heard one day we're working, one of my employees said, uh, there's this guy, Rush Limbaugh, you ought to listen to. I think you'd like him. Hmm. I never listened to talk radio. And I put him on. It was kind of fun. When I ended was this? Up what, 1988. Okay. When he first started. First started, And yeah. in 89... June 24th, 1989, at the historic Orpheum Theater in Minneapolis, Rush to Excellence Tour, sponsored by Dave Racer's Minnesota Report huh. with KSCP. But I was the sponsor. And I spent a couple days with him, and I went, wow. I know as much about Minnesota as he does about national, you know, and I'm kind of glib. I can talk. And, so ninety, I got my first show as a half hour a week. Even my mother forgot to listen. <laughs> and uh, Jim Wycor, who's still living, advised me: you got to do a daily talk show where people can call you. That's the way it's done. And hmm. I started in ninety-one. Yeah, WTCN in Stillwater, which went black, and then I went out to uh, uh, um, I went out to Monticello and uh, Shakopee for a while and back to Monticello. And I was the first talk host at KKMS when they came on in 97, across from Jason Lewis. <laughs> 
But here's what I lack. Uh, I interviewed Jason once about how he got so good, you know, and successful. You got to really be obnoxious, and you got to really be be well, able to. Well, some would argue in. that that's the reason that he's not a senator. Well, and you got to bombast. But if, on the business side of it, you got to be willing to walk into that program manager and say, "You put me on the air. Mm. I'm the guy. Yeah. I couldn't do that." <laughs> oh, I I was fortunate enough to be asked to sub in two hours on uh, uh, the Patriot, and it was. A fun experience, yeah. But just understanding that flow and the the call outs and the fact that you can't have more than a thirteen and a half minute segment, yes. and yes. this is so much better, yeah. Right, and I think that even people have said, you know, well, judging by the rise of podcast culture, that yeah. they want to learn they about long whatever yeah. whatever the topic is. Sometimes it's I will pick up. I was there's a uh, was it Titans of Nuclear, very technical nuclear energy podcast i could barely follow it but i would pick up some of those episodes and listen sure. to them because they're fascinating i was told years ago years ago to do long form interviews and uh, i'm forgetting the guy's name who was so very popular charlie rose doing, yeah charlie rose yeah. they said you could do that well why didn't i i don't know i had well, maybe now's the time it might be i know a studio it might be, yeah, yeah. I like, uh, you know, some of the other alternative news groups that have come up too. Like uh, who? I'm having brain things. So Alpha, 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 yeah, and Liz Collins. I think they're filling, they're filling a niche, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had, uh, I had lunch Liz, Liz, and their husband Bob Kroll. Mm-hmm. Bob Kroll was really helpful with Summer Senate. Yeah, he came there right. I mean, he I, his first appearance after the George Floyd riots was at Summer Senate. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and he brought his boy, and he talked about, you know, the horrible culture in Minneapolis. Well, anyway, uh, and then I learned about Liz, and then she left, you know, CCO. I heard about that coming, and we got to know each other a little bit, and uh, I've done one show with her, uh, but not about Student Senate. I can't remember what it was about. We got done, and she said, you're good at this. You ought to do this. I said, well, yeah, I know I ought to. I've been saying that for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've been keeping busy. I have been busy. But uh, we'll see where it goes. So in the time yeah. that you've been here in Minnesota, very involved in politics, have run big campaigns, national campaigns, you've been involved with the party, do you think this can be a red state? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I would said a month ago it's going to be a republican house and senate i i I believe that you know i was thinking there's a way for scott jensen to win uh i'm so sad and sorry how they've turned the abortion issue around all they have to run on is fear and abortion well you know it doesn't help scott that he's changed his stance right right you go right. listen to the tape from anyone on the campaign trail or sure the convention and it was sure pro-life sure unless the mother's life's in danger yep and now it's all this squish and yeah. you know look if you don't there's some people who will cynically say you have to say that to get the endorsement yeah. okay maybe but you shouldn't lie yeah and if you don't believe it then just say the truth in the beginning take your lumps to come with it yeah but at least you can always go back to, I told the truth. Um, and I knew that this was going to become an issue. I did not foresee Roe finally dying ignominious death, but I knew that this issue was going to come up and sure. that I knew that I was never going to move. And sure. if I was asked, I was going to say that I became a physician 
to save lives. And the most vulnerable, the ones who can't defend themselves at all, are unborn children who, by the way, are being killed disproportionately in black and brown communities. So I guess if black lives matter, then perhaps these lives should matter as well. But you were going to have to be able to fight that unapologetically in the general against walls because they were going to always go to it. So if you didn't, you should have known, Scott should have known what was coming. And if he didn't truly believe it from the get-go, then he should have let the delegates know that he was squishy on that issue and never have taken his hardline stance. Or he should be willing to die on that hill and say, nope, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it. And you can't message, you can't run ads that start by acknowledging the attack piece of your opponent. The golden rule of politics is attack, attack, attack. And you never acknowledge something that you shouldn't, that's not a bit negative. It's good. Good that you're pro-life. I like the way, um, of course, I'm a little biased with Jim Schultz, but I like the way he answered in the uh, Pioneer Press report of Ellison's uh, press conference on abortion, and he's trying to nail Jim, you know, Mm -hmm. and and Jim says, that's not a job of the attorney general. My position is no. I'm not going to change. But let's talk about, you know, the worst attorney general in the history of the state of Minnesota. That's right. Pivot. Tell yeah, the truth and yeah, pivot yeah, to an attack. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd like to see Scott do that a little bit better because yeah. for Walls, the Walls is going to run a basement strategy where he hides just like Biden sure. because he can ha- he has a giant machine sure. that will run in his stead. Um, he should be afraid of Scott after Farm Fest um, where he just got shellacked on sure. that stage. Sure. And he will simply do everything he can to wallpaper over the fact that the, his economic policies and Joe Biden's economic policies have led to massive oh. increases in cost of everything yeah. for every yeah. household. Yeah. And that's what people need to be voting on, the crime, yeah. the schools, and the out-of-control inflation. Yeah. And all that will get worse if we have more walls, and yeah. Scott just needs to just attack all the time on those issues because that's what this election is about. And if the left more. wants to make it about abortion, it is not about yeah. abortion. I don't think, I mean, historically, uh, as, a, as a voting motive, uh, statistics will always show that pro-life people are more prone to turn out mm-hmm. in elections where abortion is really a key issue than the pro-aborts, mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call them. Pro-aborts. Um, the best description. Might be different this year. Because well, of the way this is being stated, when you hear people saying, well, you can't even have an ectopic pregnancy terminated. Well, that's what? not true bull. in any state. That, that's right. You know, it's just bull. Yes. On, uh, but they lie. Um, so the question is, you know, the, the, the people, the, the, the radical pro-aborts will never change. Those people never would have ever come over to Scott's camp, no matter right, what. Right? Right. Their hair could be on fire, you don't and they would blame it on them. global warming. No. But the people <laughs> in the center who decide every election, yeah. uh, you know, need to be reminded over and over again that their lives are materially worse, they're materially less safe, and their educational system is far inferior to what it was yeah. four years ago. Yep. And that trend will continue unless they make a change in the governor's mansion. So I am uh, on the board of Human Life Alliance. Uh, I have never backed up from my conviction uh, about human life. Mm-hmm. I, de- I can defend it morally, physically, scientifically, biologically, in every way. Uh, but I challenged a woman yesterday to, I said, well, what about you? 
do you agree with uh, what most Americans do, that abortion should be prohibited after the 15th week? Um, you know, and I can't remember the other couple through. I, I threw it at her and I said, you know, I couldn't run as a governor candidate on that, but I could force the argument. What do you, what do you really, what do you really support, Mr. Walls? You know, support abortion up to the time. Well, should we be driving scissors into the heads of nine months old? Yeah. No one, no one believes support. You know, not even the people on the left, other than a few absolute crazies. Your average Democratic voter, there's like, no, 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 that's not what the Democratic Party believes. And you're like, no, actually, it is. Until that baby is fully out, they believe you have the right to murder it, which is insane. And when you expose that level of insanity to people, well, first they say, no, that's not. And you say, well, here's the party platform through all nine months for any reason or no reason at all. And they say, well, that's gross. I I agree. I agree. So, you know, because most of them still think that it's the Clintonian definition, right, which was what's safe, rare, and terrible or something like that. Yeah. It's not that. This yeah. is how crazy the party's gotten. But yeah. when you got the media running cover for you, the average person doesn't realize they that it has gotten so it. far off the yeah. rails. I mean, Europe is on average somewhere between 12 and 16 weeks, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I'm not sure anyone's over 20. Yeah. Like We're so far out of step with morality, biology, social norms, other countries um, that you know our job should be to educate on what the Democratic Party has become. Um, and what the consequences of that are. One of the ironies about Dobbs v. Jackson was, you know, it was a 15-week law. I understand Jackson didn't do abortions after the 16th week, at least as policy. It's pretty interesting. That is. I didn't know that. They were so smart in how they did this, you know, and I I don't know who, you know, in the pro-life community, it was like, oh, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, and no, 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 don't get your hopes up, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, what a shock when that first decision came out. Uh, and you can find this uh, actually on my YouTube channel, channel, which is very odd. It's Dave Racer 100. Uh, <laughs> I did a video on um, on the early leak and explained it. And and I said, oh, you know what? I don't know how this is going to come out. This is a great lesson on constitutional government. Yeah. <laughs> Just go through there and read the analysis. It's like... Who does that? Well, I do. It's, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, me. regardless of whether you're pro-life or pro-abort, I don't really think there's a case to say that the the ruling in and of itself of Roe was a good ruling. No, I mean, almost was, everybody, even on the, the you left. Should, yeah, you should be honest about the fact that it was yeah. a garbage ruling. Yeah. And then the sensationalism about, like, well, it just bans abortion. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. It's federalism. Yeah. Now it's back in the hands of people that are closer to you. Yeah, now here... We, we're going to end up with one of these five-hour ones here. But, uh, uh, so this is interesting. Dr. Keyes and I have had this discussion uh, more than once. And, of course, being a descendant of a slave and uh, you know, born in the United States, and his grandma was an American Indian. I don't remember which one. And, um, but he's, you know, he's a slave def- descendant, right, a black man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we talk about abortion. Well, he's an, he's an ab- absolutist. Um, he says, here's the thing, we'll agree. And I, now there's a difference between politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is where you nuance, right? Uh, if we could get the left to agree on a 15-week, uh, I mean, most people would say that's reasonable, and, and get Waltz to say, no, no, I want it 100%. Now we could separate him, even mm-hmm. though we don't believe this. But Alan Keyes would say, 
you're still allowing man to regulate what God created. And you cannot do that. You cannot give up that ground. He's not thinking politically. He's a prophet, mm-hmm. remember? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, God created. We don't destroy. And so he's a life of the mother guy, only exception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can't leave it to the states. Look what happened with slavery. Sure. And so, um, and I, I don't know that I've ever had heard him talk a lot about you know uh, an amendment. But you can imagine that's a fifty-year fight. It would never happen. Yeah. I mean, not. Yeah. But the the good part of it is people get educated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is, I'm a huge believer in federalism because it, yeah. it has to. There has to be the freedom to. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at federalism in the light of you know what's so funny to me is that all the southern states that would cry about states' rights then didn't want they wanted a fugitive slave law. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like, no, 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 you guys don't, you well, don't have it both ways, okay? Places, yeah. You want state rights? <laughs> right. That means if they make it here, they're right. ours. Right. And they're free. Right. And so you can continue your ridiculousness. Um, you know, I also think that it would be an interesting case for, for tariffing. Could you have, could you have, could, was, you know, th- th- this is a very popular uh, kind of mental act exercise is would slavery have died an economic death if mm-hmm. it did not die mm-hmm. from the Civil War, it's very possible that right. you would have still had more, probably more vestiges of, of the worst kind of discrimination, oppressive discrimination. I think um, Dr. Keys, I don't remember the name of the book he was talking about. This one in '74, which I went out and got, and I don't remember the name of it. But it's about the economics of slavery, uh, and where they show the import, you know, slaves from uh, Africa, mostly sold by black Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, and only 6% ever got to America, 6%. In other nations, 39, 40% of their population, you know, was made up of slaves. And, and he was showing how the cane sugar was what was driving it and not so much cotton. Hmm. And, uh, the cotton industry wasn't, you know, as, as prone to the, the value of slavery as the cane sugar was very intense. And I think that is his argument that eventually it would die. Yeah. And, uh, well, it seems to be something that could be solved with tariffs, heavy, heavy tariffs on countries that had slaves, yeah. and you know, economic warfare yeah. could have could have settled it. I mean, it's an interesting concept. Obviously, it was a great moral <laughs> evil, and yeah. most of the world we were late yeah. in terms of abolishing it. I mean, yeah. Europe, Europe understood how bad it was and got rid of it faster than we did, and it'll be something that our state, our country, has to contend with as a stain yep. on our history. But yep. it's one of those things where you uh, have to acknowledge it, and then understand to be vigilant so that it doesn't happen again yeah and um, we also have to reject the idea that just because someone has dark skin they have the same belief system and culture as everybody else well, yes, it looks that like be, them it's quite prejudicial <laughs> right <laughs> uh believe me i know lots of whites who don't think the way i do so i'm not white anyway what color am i, I yeah I'm not, no one's really like white white <laughs> I think albinos are that's about it and even then, it's kind of a pinky it's a, color. You can explain skin. I know <laughs> Dr. Beecher and I have come to the conclusion you can't really define mind, so mind, oh. is, not, mind is not brain. <laughs> that, that's, that's right. There's no, there's no way you would pick up a brain and think that the concept of mind comes from this. And yet, what do a, you treat? You treat brain injuries, and you treat the brain with chemicals. And by the way, tell your children... Mm-hmm. I heard you mention that book. It's a great book. 
Oh my book. gosh, I'm about three fourths of the way through it. So for people who haven't haven't uh, listened, I mentioned it briefly, glossed over it. It's uh, Alex Berenson's book, last book before Pandemia, and um, his investigative reporter for the New York Times, fired for I think being an investigative reporter. <laughs> um, and he's done great work on COVID. His website, his Substack is fantastic. He's been on Rogan a few times, but tell your kids is a book about, and I think he's a very good writer, it, easy to read, but goes all the way back to starting with kind of um, marijuana use in Mexico and in India yeah, and yeah. the early descriptions of psychotic <clears throat> breaks of people who, in, in a dose-dependent manner, who would get quite sick on THC and then um, kind of following that through to modern day. And again, it's qui bono, right? There's a lot of money in that yeah. lobby. Yeah. And um, I was asked a question by Brian Bass, actually, about marijuana. And my answer was decriminalization, not because I think it should be legalized, but because, and some people favor decriminalization because it means there's no licensure, so that the government's not, it's actually better than legalization because then there's no tax to it. But for me, it was an acknowledgement of how failed our entire drug yeah. war has been, right? So yeah. I don't think you should use it. Uh, it's just that we've put people in jail who don't need to be in jail. Yeah. And that's destroyed entire communities, and it has not done anything to curb use of the drug. So, so, so it's, it's, it, I, I got introduced to this by a witness at Student Senate this summer, Doug Ruder, who was a legislator in Minnesota for four years. Uh, his son was taken down by a, a SWAT team. He had a psychotic break. His son was, he believed very strongly mm -hmm. that his use of THC was the critical element yeah. and that there's, there's a subset, and I heard your re references, of people who one incident is too many because of whatever it is that's going on in their brain, body, chemistry, whatever it is that does this. And, and this is what I like about the book. He, he, uh, he's not making um, just a a moral stand or a, a intellectual assertion. He's done the research mm -hmm. and he's showing the connections and then you understand that THC in the uh, today's stuff is a lot more powerful. And, oh, it's, and I am yeah. so glad, I kid you not, oh, why did this happen in my childhood? I don't know, I experimented with stuff. Never, ever experimented with this stuff. And all my friends were doing it in the yeah. late 60s, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the percentages are, it's a dose-dependent toxin like most toxins are, right? Drink enough water, you will die. Um, yeah. so the, the dose makes the poison, and in yeah. this case, the dose has been increasing. This isn't some 3% THC joint yeah. Yeah. where, yeah, it's not that much. It's 100% in an edible or smoked directly into your bloodstream. And, you know, for those vulnerable 18 to 26, 28 primarily males that have whatever genetic underpinning sets them up for a schizophrenic break yep. or psychosis. Yep. For some people, illness. For some people, other drug use. For some people, THC. But unfortunately, once that dam breaks, it's broken. It's broken. And yeah. it's broken forever. And unfortunately, very, very bad things. So the myth that uh, no one's died of THC overdose, well, they sure as hell have committed suicide. It wasn't, you know, yeah. it wasn't that they had respiratory failure like they do with a narcotic. It was yeah. they jumped off something, they murdered yeah. someone, they murdered their kids. Yeah. These things happen. And to not even acknowledge that, which is what I think most of the kind of weed industrial complex wants to do, and even some people in medicine who ascribe 
every potential benefit that can ever be had, even yeah. though there's scant evidence for many of the things that are ascribed to THC. Um, you know, that there's a dishonest, there's a fundamental intellectual dishonesty there that I think has to be addressed. And so I think Alex's book does a great job of saying, look, there are some people for whom this could have a therapeutic benefit, just like there are you know, for many drugs, sure. right? Sure. Tylenol's helpful for some people. Sure. It's great for babies. Yeah. Uh, take too much and you die. Yeah. And the fact that we, we have to come to terms with that, it's not an unalloyed good. Very few things in life are an unalloyed yeah. good in yeah. any dose. Well, and um, I've got friends who you know, are pushing hard for legalization of mm -hmm. cannabis and all this, and I say it's probably somewhere in the middle um, and there is a safety issue there, and we better be aware of it um, before we go jumping too fast. Maybe we got to regulate the strength of the product. I don't know. I have no answer. I just know that it's it's was quite interesting to hear this. I, I as you know, I've written a few books. Uh, this year was my 55th, and um, wow. among those are a true crime book. Um, well, actually, more than one and. I got invited to write the story of a schizophrenic who murdered his friend under the influence of voices. That was the first time mm -hmm. I'd ever heard of this, and I interviewed at length, and it was like, wow, it's just, because it was so real to him. Oh, he, it, he that's shot. the tragedy. That's the tragedy of it, is that, I mean, in that moment of clarity once it's all done, think of what that person feels like. They didn't oh. want to do that. That's yeah. the worst thing ever. They just... They didn't know, or the voices told them to do it, or whatever it is, whatever they felt in their mind at that moment. I mean, they're extraordinarily ill, and it's extraordinarily tragic. Um, but w yeah, what was the experience like doing research for that? Well, book? it was uh, just listening to the stories were amazing. You know, at at sixteen, seventeen, he had started abuse drugs, and then he was starting to, uh, you know talk about how the Sri Lanka mafia was after him and, uh, and acting out. And um, eventually his uh, sister had gotten pregnant and, from her husband, and, and he was afraid that his friend Scotty was part of the Sri Lankan mafia and wanted to kill the baby. That mm. was his belief, and he took Scotty out in the fields by the Cottonwood River in... Emporia, Kansas. Why would I know that? Because I wrote a book about Emporia, Kansas, huh. and the Cottonwood River Bridge. Uh, anyway, and uh, he told Scotty to tell him the truth, and he had a shotgun aimed at him. You know what his plan was? He was going to shoot him in the belly, and uh, when his penis fell off, he was going to pick it up and take him to the hospital and save his life. He truly wow. believed that. Yeah. Scotty had a gun with him, and Scotty pulled the gun, and uh, Lance panicked, shot him in the belly, tried to get him in the car, couldn't. He's covered with blood, drives into the sheriff's office, walks in, and he says, I just shot Scotty. Hmm. And I said, where is he? He said, I don't know. <laughs> and he really didn't. I mean, this is so bizarre. Yeah. You know, and, and so what did they do? Here's criminal justice. We go off on this for a second. We've got to end this sometime. Uh, they arrest him, obviously. They take him to the state hospital. You know what they do there? They get him sober so they can try him for murder. Hmm. He sits at the, the defendant's table slobbering and, you know, drooling, and, uh, and he got him sober enough to, or I guess sane enough to stand trial. He got life. He got kidnapping charge, and he got life in prison. 
and get him into the prison, and they got to keep him on his meds because it's pretty dangerous. And, um, you know, the guy's been at Larned State Hospital on and off, but um, they don't, they're not treating his no. mental illness. No. You know, they're just trying to keep him from hurting somebody. Yeah. He's, you meet with him, he's as tame as could be, you know, as long as he's on his meds. Right. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, what is that all about? It's just, uh, it's frightening, and it's being repeated. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a... I have a daughter who suffers from dissociative identity disorder and uh, had 14 and a half years hard drug abuse, caused her to commit felonies. Uh, I mean, we've seen this up close, you know, and um, it's pretty tough to watch. Mm-hmm. So if there, is a, if there is a strong link there, I think we just got to be really careful. Well, particularly in the volumes we're talking about of people exposed, right? So yeah. 1% of a small number okay, but this is a very, very large number. And yeah, it's a number yeah. that's growing. And unfortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. the age of exposure is going downward. Yeah. And, un- and oh, yeah, that's the yeah. danger zone for, for these schizophrenic breaks yeah. is that, again, 18 to 26. Yeah. So it's all of those confluence of variables that I think is going to create a significant issue with these cases, yeah. one that can't be ignored. Um, particularly, unfortunately, there'll be some high-profile fatality or something, and then people will say, well, I don't understand. I don't understand how this happened and how all these kids are so sick and permanently yeah. institutionalized. And Well, we knew. The data was out there. You yep. just didn't care to try to listen. So the thing about Student Senate, <laughs> which we talked about a long time ago, we could study this issue this spring if yeah. that's what the kids want to study, and we'll hear this kind of evidence, and they'll have to deal with it. What would you do? They start out years ago. Years ago, they wanted to do legalizing drugs. It was so funny. We well, brought that's a fun in, one. You got to step the libertarians through through why that's a bad idea. Well, right? we we brought in one of the leading libertarian pro legalization guys, yeah. very well known person, and he was so passionate about his belief. He scared them to death. He just scared the kids. <laughs> We're not going there. You know, it's like, not if they're like him. <laughs> so, well, they don't always learn the, what they need to learn. But <laughs> Well, I'm glad you're working with them. In the Student Senate, you know, I was honored to testify there. I look forward to doing it in the future. But that's the kind of civics education that needs to be more widespread. This yeah. should be the standard in our public schools where the majority of our kids are still, you know, I think unfortunately, uh, because it's not the public school you went to or I went to. I exactly. think that's what's it's important for people to understand. School. It is no longer <laughs> a school. Yeah. It is an indoctrination center yeah. into things that will destroy this country and destroy your child's mind. So, you know, until we can get kids educational opportunities wherever they're best served, yeah. home, private, or public, yeah. the goal should, you know, be make those public schools actually get back to educating. And yeah. I think you at a minimum, need to understand the basic foundation, foundational concepts of this country, who the government actually serves, who gives us our rights, why the Constitution was written, what was the the milieu philosophically of a post-Enlightenment Christian worldview in a country that was designed to be pluralistic from the beginning. Um, Why is that so beautiful and why is that historically so anomalous? And I think that would give children a better respect for what the founders did and why it was, why it is so amazing and one of the greatest accomplishments of, of, of humans 
ever. Yes. Um, this country is a absolute historical anomaly. Yes. And if it disappears, nothing will ever replace no. it. There will never be no. a country that values the individual, that gives everyone religious freedom, mm. that has this much you know, social and economic might. Um, and so the republic is worth defending. Yep. And every citizen needs to understand that and do their part to, to maintain our constitutional republic. Well, so I'm I thank you for what you're doing with these kids. As long as the Lord gives me breath. There you go. Here's my last story. A father said to me several years ago, David, you can't stop teaching until all my children have come through your school, your class. And I said, how old is your youngest? He said, one. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, let's see, that's 85. The Lord gives me breath, you know. It's like, well, and we'll go online and we can teach more. And then those public school students who are denied that can get it online. Get online. They're on the devices all the time. May as well do something useful with it. Thanks so useful. much, Dave, again, for taking the time to speak with me and for doing the Student Senate. And, um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for what you do. Appreciate it.